Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. If you're raising a daughter, we want to hear from you today as we talk about how to raise bold, courageous, and resilient women. How are you working to build confidence and self-esteem in your daughter? You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. How to Raise Bold, Courageous, Resilient Women is part of the title of Dr. Marissa Porges' new book, What Girls Need. She's head of the Baldwin School, an all-girls school outside Philadelphia. And before leading the school, she was a White House fellow and a senior advisor for cybersecurity and technology policy at the National Economic Council. And she served as a counterterrorism policy advisor in the U.S. Departments of the Treasury and Defense and on active duty in the U.S. Navy, flying jets as a naval flight officer. Dr. Marissa Porges, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me, Lucy. Great to be here. I loved reading uh, your personal stories weaved into uh, this book about how uh, both parents and educators can work to help young girls build skills that they will need when they become adults. In your book, you talk about losing your voice for the first time when you were training to be an aviator. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, I can still remember it vividly, you know, many years later. And it was uh, one of those moments I think a lot of young women have experienced themselves, but a time when you were shut down for just being a girl and maybe being a girl in a room where it's mostly men or mo- mostly people who don't look like you or aren't, um, you know, familiar with a loud, audacious, bold woman speaking their minds. Um, and it, uh, and, you know, there was that time and I was in college during military training and uh, there was a more senior, uh, there was a senior officer who questioned my desire to to um, step into a cockpit and fly jets. And it was because I was a girl. And he said, yeah, you know, I don't think that's what girls do. And, you know, it was long after I wouldn't wouldn't have been the first. And so it wasn't a question of if women could do it. It was just whether it was the norm and expected. And I think there's still a lot of places where even as we've been breaking barriers for many decades, um, there's still a lot of places where just gender norms and socialized ways of being um, can hold our girls back unless we start coaching them early on to have the muscle memory it takes Mm -hmm. to stand your ground, speak out, speak up and and really live, live your best self. I think it's interesting you mentioned that uh, this man made this comment to you while you were training to be an aviator when you were in college. So when we're in our young 20s, I know uh, many women who are listening now, uh, there were probably those moments where someone said something like that. And when I was 19, 20, I wouldn't have been able to speak up. But at 41, I sure would be able to say, let me tell you how you're wrong. (laughs) Isn't it interesting how it, it takes years for us to build that kind of confidence to stand up for ourselves, Marissa. I think so. And I, I think this is one of the, the things I've seen here at, at the school. I spent, you know, many years in outside of a school environment in a lot of male dominated workplaces and, and fortunately, you know, had a lot of um, colleagues who who did make room for me at the table to, to use that metaphor. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, 
I, I realized over time that it wasn't until my mid or late 20s that I got truly used to um, doing all the things that I think our girls need to do right out the gate. And so we don't want to wait until they're in their 40s or well into their career or mm-hmm. even stepping out of college or into college to have honest conversations about what feels most comfortable to a young woman as they speak out and speak up, how they should compete, how they should feel comfortable communicating and being their best self. And I think it's there's easy ways we can start young, even in elementary school, in age-appropriate ways to help our girls practice the muscle memory it will mm-hmm. take um, to really lean into these moments later on. And we'll be talking about uh, some of your advice uh, also based on what social scientists have observed and the way uh, girls and boys relate to each other beginning very young and, again, how we can build those skills in uh, girls to become strong women. Uh, But I wanted to ask you about another time in your book where Mm -hmm. uh, you talk about um, being afraid to be assertive or speaking up. And it was a a situation that not everyone find themselves in. You were in a room with the president, President Barack Obama. Tell us what happened. Yes, and this is one of those, um, I've been uh, telling the story more lately since the book came out, and I have to say it's slightly embarrassing because it's one of those moments when uh, the cliche, cat got my tongue, um, but it happened in probably one of the most um, pivotal moments in my career, right? This moment I've been shooting for, I was in the West Wing, uh, right outside the Oval Office in a small group private meeting with the President of the United States, the leader of the free world, some moment that I'd been waiting for and working towards for many years. And we were talking about, um, you know, national security, foreign policy, and debating the issues of the day. And I remember through the course of the entire hour-long meeting, in retrospect, not saying a word, literally letting, there was a lot of men around the table and letting others speak up on issues that were my expertise, national, you know, foreign policy, um, counterterrorism, Al-Qaeda, things like that. Um, and it wasn't until afterwards that I realized that the narrative in my head had been, oh, I'll, I'll wait my turn. Oh, oh, don't, you know, I'll have my chance. And I didn't grab that opportunity when it came. Um, I had the good fortune of having a couple opportunities other opportunities with President Obama um, to speak my mind and, and, you know, have that moment when you're, you know, a one-on-one with the leader of the free world uh, behind the scenes talking about ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And so I I did have the opportunity personally to make it up, but I don't want any young woman to ever be in the room for their top career moment and be, you know, not have that competitive edge they need to feel comfortable speaking out and speaking up. And I think, Mm -hmm. again, there's little things we can do for our girls from elementary school on to help them practice that. Can I ask if your military background, when we think of the military as this male-dominated culture, even though many women are serving today, Marissa, do you feel like your experience in the military helped you today uh, become a strong woman? I'm just curious, um, when you had that situation with when you were early on training to be an aviator and thinking about uh, women uh, who don't serve, I'm just curious if you could tell us a little bit about what that culture was like. Well, I, I think it's where I learned a lot of the lessons that I now teach our girls, right? And this all came together in a leadership class I teach for our seniors here at, at the, the school I lead. Um, and I started telling them more stories from moments when I was on the carrier, moments when I was in Afghanistan, um, moments when I was pushed myself and had to figure it out. Um, but I don't, I think that training is transferable, right? And so, the moment that I had to figure out, for example, um, I, you know, there was a one time I can remember vividly having to um, 
uh, sign paperwork that absolved the U.S. military of any liability um, if I were to eject from my jet um, and get injured because it turned out that the safety equipment hadn't been originally um, built or made for a, a woman my size, which, you know, yes, I'm petite, but it's just the average size of a woman is much different than an average size of a man and the weight and the, the height and your the length of your limbs and all the rest. And it was a moment that at the time, you know, in my early 20s, I kind of didn't even think about and I just kept going. Um, in retrospect, it was something that I think can be transferred into a lot of work environments for our women. That time when, you know, you're questioned about what you're wearing because, you know, you're wearing pants in an environment where until recently women weren't allowed to wear pants. For example, the floor of the U.S. Congress, which didn't allow women to wear pants until the late 90s, right? Mm. I mean, there are so many moments that we don't think about that... Um, our girls will face. And yeah, I, I learned it on the fly, uh, you know, pun intended, um, when I was <laughs> in the Navy. But um, those same skills are things that we can teach. And I think every girl needs whether or not they're going to be in uniform or on the front lines. You're hearing Dr. Marissa Porges. She's the author of What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. We want to hear from you today as you think about how you're raising your children, especially your daughters, or when you think about your upbringing, what skills you wished you had learned back then that would help you uh, as you're an adult woman today. You can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. When I think about how far we've come, Marissa, when it, we think about the opportunities that women have today, but still in 2020, it is, uh, there's a lot that, that barriers, challenges uh, that we face. Women still make on average 82 cents for every dollar earned by men, fewer women in the C-suite. When you think about the, the world that uh, girls will be coming into uh, at their first job uh, when they graduate high school and college, uh, what are some of the the things that uh, still worry you today for the girls that attend your all-girls school? Yeah, I think, um, and you're exactly right. You look at the statistics and we think we've come so far, but there's still a lot of ways to go. And while the system is still changing and needs to be changed, and there should be a focus on that, um, building uh, the, the systems and tools and, and ways of being that um, will welcome those young women in, I think we also need to help our girls feel personally confident in raising their voice, um, asking for what they need and being persuasive in that ask, um, and really learning how they can compete. Um, what competition it looks like in a healthy way for our young women. Um, I, I also think it's about really helping them leverage skills that come naturally to our young women, skills of empathy and communication and collaboration, which, you know, employers are hiring for as top skills right now and, and will continue to for years to come. So, you know, those are the way places that our girls will have the easy advantage if we help them um, really nurture early on their personal approach to it. Mm. Uh, can you give us some more examples? I think about uh, when women um, accept their first job offer and they build their careers, we're often faulted for not being better negotiators or mm -hmm. when you're in a room with a bunch of men uh, not speaking up first. Uh, tell us how social scientists have seen that play out um, from the time that yeah. children are young and what we can learn from that as we think about building these skills in, in young girls today. 
Yeah, it's a, those are both great examples that we can see play out. And we'll take um, the, the speaking up and the raising your voice one first, right? It's interesting to know that still to this day, um, in lots of public spheres, um, women uh, do not speak out and speak up as often as men. Whether you're looking at the um, editorial columns in the New York Times and sort of the anonymous online commentators that, that come um, in newspapers, men out um, comment women, even in an anonymous online forum. But then you take another end of the extreme and you think of the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, Supreme female Supreme Court justices are spoken over, are interrupted at a vastly greater number, statistically speaking, than male Supreme Court justices. And here you think of women who, yes, by then have learned how to raise their voice. Um, and, and so if that's still happening, how do we help our girls, our women from an early age build the muscle memory they need to confidently speak up and in a way that feels comfortable for them speak out. Things that can you can do when they're 10 years old. You know, a great example that I, I'm pulling from the girls at my school is having your daughter speak for you and for your family um, the next time you order dinner, the next time you order takeout, right? It's a reason to not go to your smartphone and your app, but instead pick up the phone and call the pizza place or or uh, Chinese takeout. Um, or when you're when we're next out of COVID and in a restaurant or at a museum or an amusement park, right? Putting your girl front and center and having her practice that moment. It may feel awkward. It may feel uncomfortable, but she will both remember that you have valued her voice and, help, and are trusting her to do so. And over time she'll feel comfortable figuring out what feels right for her. One of our girls who just graduated, she can remember the moment when she was 10, when her dad used to make her, not her brother, not her mother, she said, call for pizza. And she hated doing it. But over time, as she grew, she figured out a way that felt comfortable. And then when she was in middle school and she was having problem um, in a class or needed help, her parent one step in. Her dad said, "No, let me. Let's practice." And when they, she dropped her off, him he dropped her off in the morning. Would say, "Okay, we practice. Now your turn." And would have the girl, even in middle school, figure out a way in class or after class to ask for what she needed. And this is a young woman who later on, you know, in high school was um, faced in a public environment with a um, incident of sexual harassment. Um, and had the muscle memory and the confidence to respond in the moment and after speak up and speak out to a senior male executive um, and ended up reporting it in a very formal, forthright way and you know was able to get what she needed even in that really difficult moment. And that was as, as a teenager, right? And so here, I do think it starts early in really age-appropriate ways that we then grow our girls into the moments when they're at the Supreme Court or, or you know, reading an op-ed and want to comment, they'll feel like they can and should. Mm. That's a great tip, uh, having uh, your daughter uh, order the next time uh, you get takeout or when at the moment when we'll be able to eat in restaurants again, uh, Marissa. But what about children who are just naturally shy? I mean, how do you coach them to be more assertive? Yeah. Well, and so this is, it's a good point because we're not saying that an introvert has to be an extrovert. I will say that a shy girl should learn how to, uh, you know, order food at the restaurant because that's something that she will have to do as an adult, of course. But there are also ways, I mean, it's really about having, knowing your daughter and having, um, or any young girl in your life, your niece, um, your the friend of a family, 
um, and helping her feel comfortable in her own shoes. Um, a, another great example is using online tools these days that are widely available. Um, one fun um, um, story or example that I, I'm also pulling from the students at my school was a young girl who really wanted a pet. And as it turns out, hedgehogs are illegal as pets in Pennsylvania. Who knew? Um, and she was eager. They, she thought that was going to be her first pet. And so she started an online petition right sent it um that was her more comfortable form of speaking out and speaking up she was in elementary schools so ended up sending it to all her the adults she knew um colleagues of her parents and then to the state legislator and before you know it she was getting responses from the state legislator talking about a bill they put forward it turns out that um, they did not pass a new statute to make hedgehogs legal but here we have a young girl you know practicing a different way of speaking out getting a response from adults and getting validation for the fact that speaking out and speaking up is a good thing. And over time, she'll grow more comfortable in other ways to do it that feel right for her. But again, it's not about making a shy girl not shy, but it's just helping them practice um, those muscle memories it takes for all of us, I think, over time to get comfortable speaking up. Uh, we heard from Elizabeth on Facebook, uh, who's really interested in your military background, Marissa. She writes her daughter's leaving in two weeks for Army officer training. Uh, her daughter is small in stature. She's feeling very anxious. She wants to know if you have advice for her. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I wish her luck, and I'm, um, I hope you're as proud as I am to see um, any of our young people uh, take that step for national service. Um, I think one thing I learned in the military that uh, really helped me, and I, I um, imagine if she's off now to training, she may have a lot of physical fitness in her background, may have played competitive sports. Um, and I do think this sense of a healthy competitive spirit is something that I really relied on um, when I was in the military. Um, those moments when I felt myself getting figuratively, quote unquote, knocked down and had to pick myself and brush myself up off, they were things I learned on the playing field, um, on the basketball court. I, I happened to be incredibly petite and uh, I still loved playing basketball growing up never was going to be an Olympic athlete or even a college athlete on the basketball court. Um, but I learned to be a competitor. Um, and it's something that I think all our girls need. Um, and yet not all of them have. It's uh, by middle school, girls are twice as likely to opt out of a competitive sport than their male peers. And yet, statistically speaking, girls who play competitive competitive sports through high school and even into college are much more likely to continue that sense of comp competition, resilience, teamwork out into the real world. And you see that not over 90% of um, women in the C-suite at corporate uh, in corporations played competitive sports um, in, co in college or high school. And then we think of women like Susan Rice or Christian Lagarde, excuse me, Christine Lagarde, um, who was the, the head of the IMF and the first woman to lead uh, the European Union Bank. Um, it, you know, she's French and was a French synchronized swimmer when she was young, right? It sounds like, well, you know, but and she t thinks that that is how she learned to compete so well in other places. Um, and so for a, a you know woman in a military environment in particular, but I think in almost any place she's going to want to go, whether it's competing for her first job, competing for her first apartment, um, having a sense of how to compete in a healthy way is incredibly important. 
opting in, brushing yourself up, being comfortable with winning or losing. Um, and so for uh, Elizabeth's daughter now off to the military, I do think reminding her that sometimes um, for me, it was about the mental capacity to put my game face on. Um, and I can even remember, you know, occasionally crying in the bathroom because that's that did happen when in military training too. Um, and I can remember a senior military officer, a woman saying, "Get put your game face on, right? This is a competition sometimes and you gotta, gotta own that. So I wish her luck. And I'm sure that um, if she leans into her competitive spirit, she'll do just fine. You're hearing Dr. Marissa Porges. She's the author of What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. We're going to continue talking with Marissa after the break. And we want to hear from you, too. How are you working to build confidence and self-esteem in your daughter? When you were growing up, what skills do you wish you had learned? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What do girls really need to succeed? My guest, Dr. Marissa Porges, says children today need a new set of skills to succeed in a changing world, and girls must nurture essential traits before they become young women and enter a competitive job market, one that's still complicated by sexism and the possibility of harassment. She wrote a book about how parents can help their daughters become leaders and innovators. It's called What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and resilient women. Uh, Mercer, I wanted to ask you, you make a point in your book that you're not arguing that women need to behave like men to succeed or conform to societal standards. So why do you believe girls need to learn skills like negotiating and competing? Yeah, well, I think the the challenge here is really questioning whether negotiating and competing are or should be considered male traits. Mm-hmm. Um, I would argue that um, that's a historical norm. And in fact, both of those ideas should just be gender neutral um, because they're skills that, um, you know, any woman or man could say, yeah, you need them on a daily basis. You You need to be able to negotiate for a lease or uh, your first salary. And unfortunately, because of social norms, women haven't necessarily been coached or coached to do so early on, and and they're at a disadvantage. Same thing with being competitive. Um, One young girl I interviewed um, for the book, you know, she claimed that uh, her, you know, competing's for boys. And and she can remember a moment in a geography bee for her in fourth grade when she was just in middle school then, so it had only been a few years when she knew the answer but didn't give it in the you know semifinals of a geography because she didn't want to make her friends feel bad. And when we talked about it and her mom, when hearing this, was aghast and said, well, but if you knew the answer, and she said, yeah, no, it was okay. I didn't need to show off. But competing isn't about showing off, right? It's about being your personal best. And, you know, this day and age, I think that's something every girl needs to say, yeah, I can do that too. It's not something for boys. It's something for all of us. And I think being, thinking of it in a healthy way, not a maladaptive way, not a win at all costs, but just a... Mm your personal best, I think it's a really important thing. And being competitive actually helps you perform better. It's something that social scientists have shown really encourages you to be even better whether or not you win or lose. So I think these are skills that every girl needs and should be not uh, for boys only. 
You can join our conversation 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, you also talk about re parents should resist the temptation to not step in or be the advocate on behalf of your their daughter. So t tell us more about this because we we want to protect our children, but there's a there's definitely a balance of how do you you teach your children to advocate for themselves. Yeah, well, and this is where the sort of age-appropriate um, coaching, uh, thing, you know, the way we think about coaching in an age-appropriate ways really comes in for parents. And it's hard to do, particularly as our our girls um, enter middle school and we and junior high school, and we think, well, you know, it's such a difficult period for many kids, and how do we be there for them throughout? And yet these are the perfect moments um, because by and large, they're going to be at school where their teachers and coaches and their advisors are there looking out for them are there wanting to support them. It's a, a safe place for them to try out how they feel um, works for them personally speaking out, right? Again, whether it's the, you know, sending an email when you need help, whether it's raising your hand and speaking up, whether right now when kids are learning virtually, a great question for parents to ask isn't, you know, how class went, but uh, did you ask a question? Did you ask a question over chat? Did you email it to your parent? Did, you know, what did it look like and how did it work for you? Um, and, and I think, you know, one thing to consider is whether or not you institute a 24-hour rule, right? This idea that every problem that comes up, do you pause and wait 24 hours before a parent jumps in? By and large, particularly in preteen and teenage years, a lot of the problems in 24 hours have subsided and, and we can, you know, calm ourselves down, our girls down and, and realize that a lot of it works itself out. Um, but then it's also this moment to say, okay, now what, right? And can you coach your girl to, you know, figure out a solution on her own that feels right? Because that's what's going to, she's going to need in college. And, you know, formidably when she's going to need it um, in work and beyond. It's it's what will empower her most. And I do think these are skills that can be taught early on in a way that feels comfortable and personal to our girls. Uh, Kelly wrote on Facebook, I learned to use language to encourage my daughter to be proud of herself. I try not to say I'm proud of her. She needs to own it and not seek the approval of others. How proud do you feel is what she asks. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think so many things. It's great to hear, Kelly, because I think a lot of it is the language we use, right? How we reinforce um, the value of their voice and not make it about us as adults, but um, make it about them. You know, an interesting thing to consider in the same vein is um, when we share lessons and stories with our kids. Um, social scientists have shown that lessons of failures, lessons of hiccups, um, stick best, stick more, are the ones that we remember. So the next time we're trying to reinforce um, a moment with our kids and we think, oh, I'm going to say that lesson I I overcame, I sort of, you know, got on the bus and did a good job. I went to my first overnight sleepover and, and, um, and it went okay. And those are the moments that sometimes our, our girls um, don't connect with and don't remember. So maybe it's the a lesson of failure, a lesson of something that didn't work out. Well, we said, yeah, but it, it was okay over time, right? That first time I went to a sleepover and I woke up and I was upset all night, um, but this is what I did about it. The first time when I was in high school and I didn't speak up and this is what happened. And the next time I corrected it this way. Um, so it's an interesting thing to think about this, both the stories and the language we share with our kids um, and our girls, because they hear everything and the mm -hmm. small things matter a lot and that's one of the lessons in my book is it's not about being the perfect parent it's just about thinking of little small ways that we can continue reinforcing um, the best in our girls 
Marissa, you talk about the importance of healthy competition, but losing is hard. And when we think about all of the demands on children uh, today, uh, teenagers, before they head out to college, if that is their, their choice, uh, you know, the fear of losing with and making them feel like, well, maybe I don't want to be competing next time. I mean, how do you um, help uh, students uh, grapple with that so that they continue to have confidence? Like, don't be afraid to try again. Yeah, well, and this is particularly for young women where um, perfectionism is a struggle for a lot of um, teenage girls. And we need to get them used to, candidly, get them used to failure, right? Get them used to the failure and the little F, right? We all think back to the stuff that we thought was failures when we were kids and it's nothing, right? It's the the, the lips of life. Um, you know, one way to do it is to normalize, quote unquote, failure, right? Normalize the hiccups and that are everyday parts of life. You know, one thing that um, some families I know practice is that they call highs and lows or um, thorns and uh, thorns and petals. And on a daily basis, they share the, you know, the hiccups, the failures of the day, as well as the up moments. And it normalizes over time the sense that both as adults, we still have these moments. So it's sharing over the dinner table. It can take five minutes on the car ride home from school or around the dinner table if they're learning virtually at home or whatever that moment is to say, yeah, high and low from the day, uh, you know, a, a blip and uh, something that worked well, right? And it can be simple as, yeah, I, re you know, as an adult, we would say, ah, I, I replied all to an email or I shot my boss something and it was, you know, incorrect <laughs> or I, I, you know, had this moment that just happens normally and we get used to, but in the girls' minds, that's something that, they struggle with, but then ask your daughter to share too, right? And say, ah, you know, I, and you know, one of the girls that I know who practices says, yes. And I, this is when I share that everything from I fell in skating in a competition to, uh, you know, I forgot my homework to, you know, the, the, the dog chewed my backpack. Right. But then there was also the fun moment that I got something right, or I saw a friend or something worked out. And when we help them balance those two realities and realize that it's not such a big deal, um, you know, it's, this isn't the big failure. This isn't sort of those moments where we need to get there and pick them up. It's the moments that every day they need to get used to diving back into the competition. So I think it's a, a thing we have to normalize with our girls. You're listening to Where We Live. My guest today, Dr. Marissa Porges, author of What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. She's also head of school for the Baldwin School, which is an all-girls school outside of Philadelphia. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Barbara's calling in from Essex. Barbara, you're on the show. Oh, doesn't look like Barbara is there anymore. Uh, but I wanted to read a comment uh, to that we heard also got on Facebook, Marissa. She wants to know more about um, your perspective on single sex education. Elizabeth went to a women's college and when uh, she was denied maternity benefits, she sued that employer. She attributes the confidence to the school she attended and the leadership it provided. Yeah, well, I, I love hearing that, um, and I'm, I'm glad to hear it worked out for you. And I, I do think single-sex education or single-sex experience is really important and empowering for our young women. And I uh, hope that for every um, every girl out there has a chance, whether it's school or a camp or an after-school program, to have a little time where it's just um, her being empowered with other young women. And it's because a couple of things, right? As they grow up, um, our girls um, are socially conditioned to um, communicate in certain ways, behave in certain ways, even speak in certain ways during class. And it plays out differently in code and 
environments. Studies have shown that in um, a co-ed environment, a young boy in elementary school is likely to speak out and speak up three times more often than a young girl. But you take that same girl and you put her into a single sex environment with other young women, and she's going to speak out and speak up just as often. And a lot of it has to do with social conditioning, behavioral norms, and what's reinforced as good behavior for girls versus boys, even how our teachers teach sometimes. And I know that teachers at, at all girls schools, at single gendered schools are um, conditioned to really think um, specifically about what girls need at different ages to reinforce things like growth mindset. This idea that our girls, to our earlier conversation, Lucy, need to learn how to fail and be resilient. Mm. And that's something that girls socially don't get um, and by age six are likely to opt out of these moments because they think they can't try it if they don't know it inherently. Whereas our young boys keep going because they assume if it's not something they know now, they will over time learn it, right? There's all these um, nuances that really play out in a single gendered um, environment. And it's why statistically speaking, um, we see everything that, you know, girls um, are more likely to pursue leadership opportunities in college if they've graduated from a single sex high school or are three times more likely to pursue a STEM career um, and six times more likely to actually pursue engineering or computer science if they went to a girl's high school or a girl's school growing up. And, you know, these are just small moments and examples, but there's a lot of them that play to say, you know, whether it's a school or a camp or an after-school program or just something at your church or synagogue or our mosque or, or something that we can give them where it's just about them and we can um, divorce things from what are everyday common norms and co-ed environments. Um, it's really helpful for young women. You can join our conversation with Dr. Marissa Porges, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, we've spent some time talking about competition, Marissa, but I was thinking about uh, collaboration and how women are naturally good at collaborating and working together as a team. Can you talk about why that is? Yeah, well, and this is a fantastic, um, uh, fantastic research that's come out just recently as we've grown more attentive to how we collaborate and coordinate because it's such an important skill any place you look in any work environment or even on the home front too. Um, and yes, there's a, a recent study that showed uh, that uh, interviewed and studied teenage kids, boys and girls around the world, 125,000 15 year olds, and demonstrated that girls were statistically speaking um, better at problem solving in teams, collaborating in groups than boys. Um, they on average uh, outperformed the boys by 30 points and were 1.6 times more likely to be rated top performers in this critical skill. It comes down to, again, things that have been socialized in terms of how they communicate with each other from an early age, how young girls are encouraged to find consensus, how they're encouraged to think of the other uh, as they navigate um, even sort of that moment in pre-K where they're sharing toys. Um, and a lot of it is just socialized ways of being. And yet we see it now as such a critical skill, such a competitive advantage for girls. And so I think it's something that, you know, isn't a, it's about helping them lean into their best selves and saying, no, that's great. And so this is where from a parent's perspective, you think it's about um, asking the question when they come home from school, not 
how did the just how did it go but oh what happened with your lab partner what happened in that team project what happened when it wasn't going well what did you do next with um, your partner or lab mate um, because those are the moments that when we reinforce the behaviors that take um, uh, communication collaborative thinking problem solving in certain different ways it, it reinforces this um, sense that that's really what we want to nurture in our girls and they'll lean into it more and more. David's calling into the show and you can too, 888-720-9677. David, what's your question or comment for Marissa? Hi, Marissa. This is a wonderful show. I'm really enjoying it. Um, uh, my son is an engineer and uh, he started his first job about a, uh, about a year ago, but during the interview process, he went from intern and they interviewed him for the job. He had in his mind a number for what the, the cost should be, uh, what the what the salary should be. And the interviewer from HR was a woman, and she went, you know, they, there was a there was a negotiation process, and they came out in the middle, and he told me about it. I thought, that sounds great. You know, you, you, your starting point is very important. I negotiated it up a bit. They went low, he went high, they came out in the middle. At some point later, the woman who was the interviewer told him that, yeah, for guys, she always goes a little lower because guys always negotiate up. And had he been a woman that she was interviewing, she would have gone right to the middle number. And, um, and they would have arrived at the same salary as starting engineers, but the process would have been different. And I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Is this woman sort of enabling the status quo or is she evening the score? Yeah. Oh my gosh. What a fantastic story, David. Thank you for sharing. Um, it's a very interesting thing. And you think, well, at least in, in one example, we have a system trying to correct for what is a historic um, disparity between women. And we talked about from between women and men. We talked early on in the show about the pay gap, right? That um, women are paid 82 cents on the dollar still to this day for what the same job a man does. And so here we see maybe, I, I would argue the system's maybe correcting for itself because it sounds like in the HR sense, she's still ending up at the same even point for starting engineers and then getting the same salary. But statistically speaking, because in this day, women do not negotiate. Even those who've been coached and, and trained in negotiating, um, those who are graduating from MBA programs, um, when they're graduating, a study showed that a mere 7% of women asked for more money during this opening negotiation for their first job. In comparison, 57% of wow. the men negotiate. So I would, I'm glad that it worked out for your son, David, but I do think that unfortunately most women are not... Um, position, they don't have the muscle memory, they don't have the skills to think, to know that, yeah, you have to negotiate your first job. And if you don't, you are behind the curve for the rest of, uh, unfortunately, the rest of your career, since oftentimes job salaries are benchmarked on your last job. Um, and over many years, you can, hundreds of thousands of dollars can be lost, left on the table. Um, but more importantly, the sense that, you know, we're not closing that final mile in the gap of, of different norms and different gender gaps. So, I would argue that, again, it's this a bit of a system correcting for itself because it sounds like it was equitable in the end. Um, but I do think it's a really good story to think about when we're talking about young women. How do we get them to ask for what they need? How do we get them to know that in that first job at the pizza parlor at the summer camp, you know, they, they try negotiating. It doesn't matter if it works out or not, right? Because it's, but it's about the muscle memory of knowing you have to ask, right? Even something, you know, even earlier on, how do they get persuasive when they're asking for something they want with their families? Um, you know, a fun story again that um, I learned from my girls here at the school is, you know, when one of them said that when she's asking um, for something for her 
uh, from her parents, and whether it's a sleepover on a weeknight or a, a new toy or some exception to a rule at home, she has to pitch for it. Um, her parents uh, ask her to come back with three reasons, and she is now, she showed me one of her um, PowerPoint presentations over time. She started, decided to make a PowerPoint, and the best one I saw was, um, in a, you know, the PowerPoint that uh, argued for a sleepover on a Thursday night, and it showed the cupcakes they wanted to make, the movie they wanted to show, and the tents they wanted to build in the living room. Um, and the reality is I have no idea if they got their, uh, if the, this girl got her her ask. It didn't matter, but it was a sense that her parents wanted her to ask, wanted her to persuade, wanted her to practice the muscle memory she'll need when she's going for that first engineering job, just like your son. So thank mm -hmm. you for sharing the story, because I think it's a great example for us to all think about. I love thinking about that, that negotiating like muscle memory and why we need to instill that in girls early on. Uh, Dr. Marissa Porges is my guest today. She's head of the Baldwin School, an all-girls school in Pennsylvania, and author of this new book, What Girls Need, How to Raise bold, courageous, and resilient women. We'll continue talking with her after the break. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, Dr. Marissa Porges, head of the Baldwin School and author of What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. Uh, Marissa, you spend time in your book talking about empathy and why that is important. When we were thinking about um, this show, the question of does empathy get a bad rep, equating it to being too sensitive, how do you address that concern? Yeah, I think this is something that's changed um, over time in the past, you know, five to 10 years as leaders in the private sector and the public sector and at the corporate world and everywhere have realized that empathy is actually um, something that drives the bottom line, something that makes you a better leader, a better manager. Um, it's interesting to know that even uh, old, old school traditional companies like Ford Motor Company have started teaching their engineers empathy. Um, they make new engineers wear what's called the empathy belly. It is actually a um, an outfit that uh, mimics the feeling of being a third trimester pregnant woman. Um, it has a belly and it sort of um, tightens uh, the feelings in your chest. And they have their engineers get in and out of Ford cars to practice what it feels like to be a nine month pregnant woman navigating um, a standard car so that those engineers can help design with empathetic thinking in mind, understanding the perspective of the customer to better engineer and design things that will improve the customer's experience. You think empathy is helpful, going back to our military conversation earlier, you know, leaders in Afghanistan and Iraq, when I was there, I can remember um, hearing from uh, General McMaster who would say, empathetic thinking is what's going to help us win um, the war. Understanding what mm -hmm. the other needs and how we help keep that perspective in mind is going to make us better soldiers, better soldiers for the people um, that we're leading um, in our platoon. Um, and it's something that I saw firsthand when I was doing research, um, interestingly, on, on counterterrorism. I can remember sitting across from um, a former Al-Qaeda recruiter right? And my ability to empathize with him, as crazy as it sounds, and be able to share moments that took his perspective in mind, 
helped us navigate really tricky moments and helped me figure out how to advise the U.S. government and foreign government officials on what to do next um, in, com in combating terrorist groups. Now take that and translate it to what our girls are thinking and doing. They are natural empathizers. From an early age, our young girls are encouraged to find consensus, to think about their friends and classmates, to think about how to take those perspectives in mind on a daily basis. And we want to encourage that. We want to nurture it, not because it's of the golden rule, not because it's the girly thing to do, but actually mm -hmm. because it's going to make them better in the workforce. It's going to make them better on the home front when they're older. So it's a really interesting moment in time when we can think about how this skill becomes some competitive advantage for our young women later on. Mm -hmm. Janet's calling from Torrington. Janet, what's your question? Oh, thanks. Good morning. It's not really a question. I think I'm going to make it a comment. Um, I have been in the corporate world for all of my career, and I have raised, and my husband and I have raised two very independent, um, strong young women. One is 24 and has been out on her own for four years. The other is a senior in high school. And my comment is um, they are spectacular, witty, bright young women. But the, I think, for me, the consequence or the repercussion of raising strong, independent women is then there's some worry <laughs> that comes with their independence in, you know, moving around and taking on new jobs. And um, so I think that's just an interesting piece of, for us, and I know for a lot of, of my friends, um, you do have to back off and you, and you give up that control, but there is a ongoing parental worry, I think, with that strong independence. Well, that's yeah. an interesting uh, comment. I'm Marissa. Thank you, Janet, and thank you for sharing that. And I'm so um, proud to hear how how strong and, and uh, audacious it sounds like your girls are. Um, it's a, a good thing to remember, and I think all parents would, would feel this way, but particularly for our girls, because, you know, as we know, the system isn't entirely there yet, and they're still going to face the daily hurdles, um, and when they're independent, they might face them on their own. And then I'm going to challenge my own my own statement there about facing them on their own. And one of the conclusions in, in my book, but also in my, my career and in my work here at the school is that we need to remind our young women that they're never fully alone. They may be independent, but that they should have a team alongside them, but it may not be their parents, right? And I have to say that, you know, my team has included girls I graduated high school with, girls that I played sports with, um, women that I served with, men that I served with in the military who I still call today when I need something. Um, and the texts I just, I have this week coming in from former colleagues who are cheering me on and my new role of opening a school during a pandemic. And I think the thing to remind your daughters, Janet, and remind all our girls is, yes, we want them to be independent, but independence should be coming with a team alongside them. And men do this, right? Men, you know, count on mentors and sponsors. It's something that is sort of naturally part of their network, right? We want our young women to invest in that network equally effectively and equally often because that's how they will not be alone when they hit their struggles, even if their parents are not mm -hmm. uh, alongside them. So Janet, I, I hope that we can remind your daughters that because they'll, they'll be fine when they have people to turn to. We just have a few minutes left, Marissa, and I was thinking about adaptability, something else you talk about in your book, something that all of us have struggled with in this pandemic. Uh, but I wanted to read this comment from Jeremy on Facebook. Uh, he wants to hear um, 
how you support girls who may be less independent than their peers due to disability or clinical anxiety. How might your approach differ or not when considering the intersection of gender with disability and difference, Marissa? Yeah, thank you. I think this is where it's about knowing um, your daughter, knowing your girl, knowing your student when you're a teacher and finding little things you can do differently. And we have um, students here who are struggling with a lot of whether it's personal, physical um, challenges, things that they need help on. And and that's the the nature of growing up these days, right? Um, And and we want to make sure that um, we can still push them because uh, the reality is is just about finding um, different ways to present that challenge. Um, and so I, I would say that um, it's it just may look different. Um, this is where um, that first challenge may not be you know, going to overnight camp. It may be something closer to home. It may be something um, around your dinner table, right? Help, helping a girl speak out in those environments will be equally empowering. Um, and so I would say that these skills are applicable to all our girls, no matter um, what um personal struggles or challenges they may face in different ways, um, no matter their socioeconomic or racial background, um, because, you know, being able to speak up, being able to negotiate, being able to empathize and adapt are things all our young women need regardless. As I mentioned, Marissa, we're almost out of time, but I just wanted to ask you one more question when we think about adaptability. How do you encourage your girls to get outside their comfort zone? Yeah. Well, I think this is about building those moments of outside your comfort zone into the normal day um, and really helping the girls be resilient. One thing we do here is we actually, um, I would say grade resilience, because it's not about the grade. It's about the comment that comes alongside it. One of the things we do when our girls are taking computer science and engineering um, in middle school is part of the rubric for assessment. It actually says, um, what happened when you when you struggled, right? Did and the comments are: Did you turn to a friend? Did you keep trying? Did you talk to a teacher, um, or did you give up? Right? Did you stop? Um, and the idea here isn't about the grade and the outcome because in, in seventh grade it doesn't really matter, right? But it's about reinforcing this idea that the trick is to brush yourself up and try again. It's why we build sports into the school day for our girls and for listeners out there. Sports are a great and easy way to build adaptable thinking because we have to be adaptable in any team we play on. Um, there's other things we can do, particularly now during the pandemic, right? And I think it's about modeling our own adaptability, right? One of the moments of adaptability that I showed all our girls here was the first time I jumped on Zoom for an all-school assembly back in March when the first week we went all remote. And I have to say, it was a ginormous failure, right? We were all (laughs) trying to figure it out together. But sharing the story and that reality, and so parents, when you're having the struggle at what work looks like remotely or what how we're navigating it and saying, yeah, it's okay, we're we're getting started in a new world. Right now we have our girls showing up for class and we're saying, you know, we're adapting to this together. And that's, you know, it's going to be a a challenge for us all. But these are particularly Mm -hmm. exceptional moments to help our girls practice adaptability. And I think this generation of young women um, will have be more adaptable than any other because of what this pandemic is forcing us all to do and forcing us Mm -hmm. all to model. And so this is where role modeling is as important as anything Mm -hmm. for our kids. Dr. Marissa Porges, again, head of the Baldwin School and author of this great book, What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. Marissa, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for being here. I look forward to hearing from readers. And please pick up my book on Amazon or wherever you pick up your books these days. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can learn more about the show. Just download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.